reckless reporting, retribution ruined, plus a song and dance that had everyone talking this week. All this and more on Talking Sheet. This is Les Moore, and you're listening to Talking Sheet, the podcast that goes in-depth for analysis of all the coverage in popular insider wrestling newsletters, news sites, podcasts, and more, looking at the past week in pro wrestling. This show is being recorded on Sunday, October 25th, 2020. Welcome to the relaunch of Talking Sheet. It's good to be back, and it's good to have you with us. For those of you who listened to the show in its previous incarnation, thank you for being back. For those of you who are new to Talking Sheet, welcome to the show. Just like the intro says, Talking Sheet is a show that breaks down the major wrestling news stories of the week and takes a close look at how those issues were covered among the biggest news sites and insider wrestling uh, reporters and analysts around the industry. The podcast originally ran from 2015 until 2017 and then kind of intermittently through 2018 and 2019. It's been about a year and a half since the last episode, I think, so bear with me if I'm a little rusty. I am uh, definitely out of practice. In the past, I was joined by two amazing co-hosts, Hugh Little and Celia Bloom, neither of whom are joining me today because, honestly, I'm doing this on a bit of a whim, frankly, to see if I even still enjoy doing it. Um, If it becomes a regular thing, don't be surprised if you hear from one or both of them, too. Time, as they say will tell, dear listener. Today we're going to start with a situation involving Impact wrestler Kylie Ray, who missed her scheduled match on Impact's Bound for Glory pay-per-view Saturday night. Now I'm not going to delve into the speculation surrounding the story or get into any dark Twitter rumors that are floating around. Instead, I want to focus on how this story broke last night how incorrect details were quickly disseminated online, and then compare that to a couple of reports that actually, I think, dealt with the story the correct way. And that's where we'll start. Mike Johnson reported on PW Insider last night, quote, Kylie Ray was legitimately not at Bound for Glory uh, pay-per-view tonight, and there's no word yet why. Okay, simple. Over on uh, Fightful Select, they wrote, As of now, there is no real reason as to why Kylie Ray was not on the Impact Bound for Glory show, outside of her not being present at the tapings. Those we spoke to in the company simply told us that they thought the match was still going to happen as of Friday and earlier this week. All right. No problem there, right? But on F4W Online, it was reported This way. While explained on the pay-per-view as a no-show, Brian Alvarez is reporting she was off the show due to an injury that isn't considered to be serious. No other details are available. Ray has been active on the indies between impact taping dates, uh, wrestling as recently as two weeks ago. 
Now, Post Wrestling and other sites ran fast with this version of the story because of the stature afforded a site like F4W Online. It was everywhere. Uh, John Pollock over on Post wrote, There is no word on Ray's status, although Brian Alvarez of the Wrestling Observer, Observer website is reporting that she suffered an injury that is not considered serious. Post Wrestling has reached out to officials at Impact for an update. Wrestling Inc., the biggest wrestling news site in terms of traffic currently, reported Kylie Ray didn't appear at tonight's Impact Bound for Glory due to, quote, an injury that isn't considered to be serious, according to Brian Alvarez of F4W Online. Sports Skeeter Wrestling. It's been reported by Brian Alvarez of Wrestling Observer that Ray actually suffered a minor injury. 411 Mania, Brian Alvarez of Wrestling Observer reports that Kylie Ray missed Impact Wrestling Bound for Glory due to an injury that isn't considered serious. E-Wrestling News, Brian Alvarez of Wrestling Observer notes that Kylie Ray missed Impact Wrestling Bound for Glory due to an injury that isn't considered serious. Wrestling News Co., Brian Alvarez reported that she was kept off the show because of an injury that is not believed to be serious. WrestleTalk. Brian Alvarez is now reporting that Kylie Ray was forced to miss the show uh, due to injury, explaining why Susie replaced her in the title match. Thankfully, the report notes that this injury is not believed to be serious. It was so prevalent that Fightful Select posted an update to their original story. To follow up, they wrote, We've heard nothing of an injury, and Impact Talent hasn't been given that reason for her absence. We've subsequently been told that this situation was also a surprise to the company. So, so why does this matter? Well, this morning, the tune on F4W Online changed, with Josh Nason writing an update and editing last night's story. He wrote today, as reported last night, Kylie Ray missed her scheduled knockouts women's title match with champion Deanna Parazzo with no amount announcement made on the show as to why. This left a lot of fans unhappy, with people noting that if she was injured or ill, they should have announced it and everyone would have understood. The story that went around was that she was injured, but we were later told that was not the case. We have confirmed that no announcement was made because the company did not know the situation at the time, making our previous report of an injury incorrect. Right now, all that is known is that she was in Nashville, ready to work on Friday, and did not come to the building on Saturday. The edit to last night's story. It was said on the pay-per-view that she was a no-show, and our Brian Alvarez was initially told it was due to a non-serious injury. However, we were later told that wasn't the case, and that no announcement was made because the company did not know the situation at the time. All we know right now is that she was in Nashville, ready to work on Friday, and did not come to the building on Saturday. So, way more in line with what was reported on Fightful Select. So you have to wonder, if, if talent wasn't told that she was injured, or that she was missing the show due, due to injury, as Fightful Select reported. It begs the question, especially with Alvarez's track record, who told him she was injured? Where did he get that information? If Mike Johnson and Sean Ross Sapp didn't hear the same information, and their track records are on these things are far better than Alvarez nowadays, who's feeding Alvarez the information? 
But more importantly, why is the site running with it? Is he just guessing because she missed a Black Label Pro match during the GCW Collective event a couple of weeks ago? We don't know because there's no sourcing. There's no indication of where he's getting that information from or how he's hearing it. It's just because his word goes so far that this got spread far and wide that she suffered a, non, uh, a non-serious injury. But where did that information come from, right? Fightful Select posted another update about the situation, saying that according to several wrestlers, Kylie drove in with those wrestlers who were giving this update to Nashville on Friday and was inquiring as to her call time on the show. Fightful stresses this information is from the talent on the Impact roster and not from officials um, at the company itself. They also note that there was concern in the locker room throughout the day Saturday when no one was hearing from Kylie Ray. I'm sure we'll hear more about this situation as it develops, but I would caution everyone, do not get your news on this or, frankly, from any, on anything from Brian Alvarez. Because it was, it was far from the only uh, situation of reckless reporting this, this week. Uh, two major stories from this past week. One involving the death of Mexican wrestler Principe Aereo, and the other a sensationalistic overreaction to the Orange County, Florida Health Department's strike team uh, being asked to look into several businesses in the Orlando area for issues related to COVID-19 spreading or outbreaks. The coverage we'll be looking into on both these issues involved, again, the reporting from Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez over at F4W Online. We'll start with the reporting on the death of Principe Aereo, real name uh, Luis Angel Sanchez. And it's an illustration that, particularly with Meltzer, there's sometimes a hesitancy on these things to withhold information until he receives a confirmation or to simply say he doesn't know. And it's weird because he doesn't do it all the time. He just does it kind of sometimes. He'll just kind of wildly go out there. And Alvarez does it all the time. He has never heard uh, a a, a vague detail that he didn't want to pump up to 11 just to kind of get the scoop and and be reactionary about it. Here, there are no details as to what the actual cause of death is. Alvarez originally even gets Sanchez's age wrong. Um, you know, when it was reported, it was, he was believed to be 26. Um, and that's how it was listed on the site. But Alvarez just outright states it as fact, 26 year old. And later we learned that the guy was actually sadly, tragically 23 years old. Not, uh, you know, not that that's the, the end all and be all. It's just an illustration of there is, you know, no lack of attention detail, lack of attention to detail that this guy won't go to just to kind of get the sensationalistic aspect out there let's take a listen want to make mention of the death of principe ario who passed away tonight age of 26 apparently a heart attack in the middle of a match for at this point no conceivable reason yeah i mean it's there's i'll just tell you the report that i have is that he collapsed in the middle of the match he was checked on. He was taken away in a stretcher. In less than a minute, they had the they called the ambulance, so it wasn't like it was a long period of time. 
um, when they couldn't revive him backstage. He passed away before the ambulance got to the hospital, believed to be a heart attack. The show did continue, and they finished the show, even though they knew he passed away. Um, there was the live reports indicated nothing crazy happened. And I know one of my friends, Rob Bahari, saw the video of the second half of the match. And he said it, everything looked completely harmless. Um, and uh, he apparently took two chops and just went down. Yeah. Yeah. To make matters worse, in his daily update on Sunday, October 18th, the day after Sanchez died, Meltzer printed uh, the following. That Principe Ario passes away following a heart attack during a match. He even had some groundless medical input from someone claiming to be a doctor, but no medical bona fides are listed, no qualifications or any indication whatsoever of the, the sort of medicine this man practices, or anything that would indicate... He has any business whatsoever to provide input on a wrestler's cause of death simply from viewing the match. Here's what Meltzer wrote. Dr. Greg Mara, who saw the tape of Sanchez's death, noted this to us. I've seen in the hospital a few times teenagers coming into the ER in cardiac arrest after getting hit in the chest with either a lacrosse ball or hockey puck. Usually it happens when the heart is in between beats and it ends up going into ventricular fibrillation and they essentially face plant to the ground, which would need a portable defibrillator, which these cases I've seen had in the past and the kids survived. My educated guess would be that the chop was in between beats and the rhythm was thrown off and he went into V-fib and they just go down instantly when it happens. I went to medical school in Mexico. I've spent five years of my life there, and I know how it is there, and it doesn't surprise me after living there that they wouldn't have a portable defibrillator on hand. Just wanted to pass that along. This site is going full bore with the idea that this man died of a heart attack with no medical report to back it up, pure speculation, and even medical speculation by this supposed Dr. Mara. This is some Fox, Fox News level reporting here. Finally, on October 19th, we get some actual facts, which are then reported on Wrestling Observer Radio. Let's take a listen. We've got a lot of news to get into here today, and we're going to open up with something we talked about a couple of days ago, the death of Principe Aereo, ruptured middle cerebral artery. Essentially, it's a brain, brain aneurysm. Yes, was the cause of death. And so it was, it was not a heart attack. So, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, um, from what I gather, I actually have some notes on this. Um, um, these, it, it could be congenital, um, these type of things. Um, there are also conditions that could increase the chance of it. Uh, brain trauma, you know, uh, head trauma can cause it, but it's not that common. And, um, from people who've seen the match, which I have not seen, there didn't seem to be anything in the match where he took any kind of a blow to the head or anything like that. He did a dive, but his head never hit anything. And, um, so that it probably was not that. You'll notice there, no actual corrections were made. 
I mean, they said that it wasn't a heart attack, but it didn't correct the the their previous reporting that he was 23 and not 26. And they didn't apologize for misleading their listeners by recklessly re- reporting bogus information or worse, not even information, just groundless speculation. One wonders why. Why in circumstances like this do we get wild speculation on a man's death in the ring? It's bizarre. It's made worse by examples like this. And Thursday night, in the newest edition of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, it was released. And in it, Dave Meltzer reported that Ben Carter had signed with WWE, right? Now, this news uh, had been talked about endlessly prior to the Observer, based on remarks made by Miro uh, Barnyashev, the former Rusev in, in WWE who on his Twitch channel uh, said something like, we ain't got Ben Carter no more. We lost Ben Carter. He's gone to the dark side. And it was immediately reported all over the place that that meant he was most likely signed by WWE. That was the indication. This information didn't make the cut at F4W Online, right? It was because it was unsubstantiated. So it wasn't until Meltzer could confirm it in his newsletter Again, without any attribution, I might add, which makes it, it, me wonder, was Meltzer just printing the rumor from Miro's Twitch too? We don't know. It just all of a sudden appeared in the, in the newsletter. And anyway, fr- Friday morning, October 23rd, that's when Josh Nation writes, in this week's Wrestling Observer newsletter, Dave Meltzer confirmed that Ben Carter has signed a deal with WWE, a rumor that had been circulating for several weeks. You see, Ben Carter signing with WWE gets more care than the circumstances surrounding a man's death. They hold off on that story until Meltzer can confirm it somehow by getting information. But on something like the man, a man's death, they're just running wildly. I, I don't get it. I just don't understand it whatsoever. Reckless. In this week's Wrestling Observer... I'm sorry. Speaking of life and death, moving on. Uh, COVID-19 was back in the news related to WWE again this week. And as I mentioned at the top of this segment, the Orange County, Florida COVID-19 strike team, they're looking into businesses in the Orlando area where uh, there are believed to be higher than usual case counts. Our businesses like bars, there are, I think, eight bars on the list. Uh, And then several other businesses, three of them operated by WWE, they're being looked into. Are they spreading COVID in the county? I spoke last week with a source uh, with knowledge of this strike team's previous investigations, because this has been an ongoing thing. And I was told, more or less, it's a compliance check to see what protocols are in place at the venues, how many people come in and out, what testing measures they use, yada, yada. In the past, these check-ins or investigations have happened in Orange County due to complaints or suspicions raised about the locations being looked into, but the source wouldn't confirm to me that that is the case specifically with WWE sites at this time. More or less, they'll be looking into whether guidelines are being followed and what safety measures are in place. That's what the source told me. Uh, Asked if investigators will seek information regarding past positive tests or outbreaks at each of the venues, the source replied, yeah, probably, or possibly. 
It all sounds relatively routine to me as I was looking into it and as it was reported, but that didn't stop resident wrestling media sensationalist Brian Alvarez from leaping to more grand presumptions after reading the WWE statement regarding the investigation on his daily radio show, Wrestling Observer Live. Let's listen to this. WWE issued the following statement in response. As I noted in the opening segment, maybe I shouldn't read too much into this, but these are the numbers that they gave everybody. WWE is not open to the public, but rather operating on a closed set with only essential personnel in attendance. As part of ongoing weekly testing protocols, Aventus Labs have administered more than 10,000 PCR tests to WWE performers employees, production staff, and crew, resulting in only 1.5% positive cases as compared to the current national average of more than 5%. Additionally, extensive contact tracing takes place. Impacted individuals are placed in 14-day quarantine and then only cleared after they test positive. So let me repeat that one more time. Aventus Labs have administered more than 10,000 PCR tests to WWE performers, employees, production staff, and crew, resulting in only 1.5% positive cases. Do you know what that means if you do the math? Well, that means 150 performers, employees, production staff, and crew have tested positive for the coronavirus. 150 people. As I noted on Twitter, 150 positive tests doesn't mean 150 people. WWE have not tested 10,000 people. They've administered 10,000 tests to the same people multiple times. Typically, these people would test positive more than once, while getting tested to make sure they're actually cleared to come back. Thankfully, Dave Meltzer was on hand later that same night on Wrestling Observer Radio to, to set Inspector Ringside there uh, uh, straight. Let's listen. They then issued a statement, WWE, where they basically stated that they had done 10,000 PCR tests with 1.5% positive. Yes. That's 150 people. Well, it's 150 positive tests. It's not necessarily 150 people. So there you have it. The sensationalist Brian Alvarez. It's, it's, it's really, it's kind of mind-boggling, to be honest with you. So caveat emptor, whenever listening to Brian Alvarez, honestly, he's just, he's... He's the entertainment portion of the show, folks. He's not a reporter of factual information. He's a sensationalist. He's a shock jock. Please use caution when you're listening to this guy. Moving on to other coverage this week. Retribution was ruined. We start with what was kind of the biggest story coming out of WWE Raw Monday night. Uh, early on in the show, the heel group re that just recently was revealed to be led by Mustafa Ali was, by all accounts, just ruined in embarrassing fashion. 
after uh, losing what was just their second match in the company and in convincing fashion to the Hurt Business. And then they were summarily destroyed single-handedly by The Fiend. We've got clips here from uh, Sean Ross Sapp and Denise Salcedo uh, over at Fightful. And then we also have a clip from uh, John Pollock and Wei Ting from Rewind a Raw at Post Wrestling. Let's take a listen to these clips. T-Bar, the menacing T-Bar, taps out. I'm done. 10.57. I was astounded at this. The And even more so by the end of the night that this was even done for any reason. Well, I'm watching this. First of all, this is the group's, like, first match. And, like, I'm watching it, and I'm watching the whole time, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm excited for this. You know, I want to see what Ali looks like as the leader of this thing. Um, let me just say, like, it's kind of a hard, like, as I'm watching the match, I'm thinking, oh, man, like, you know, it's kind of tough for me to buy Ali as sort of, like, you know, a sudden main event level heel, you know, when, when last week, I mean, he was just a, a guy on main event. Um, and then, uh, little did I know that would kind of be the least of our, that wouldn't even be in the stratosphere of concern because coming out of this, you have the biggest guy in the group, T-Bar, Dominic Dijak tapping um straight up to to this to this move and i just and that wasn't it that was just the beginning this was just the beginning the fiend returns and the fiend goes one on four and annihilates retribution he's handing out sister abigail's uranagi onto the desk T-bars caught in the mandible claw, then a sister Abigail to him. I thought that they were going to be bringing out a crate with an OVW sticker on it for the end of this segment. The Hurt Business just watches The Fiend from the floor, and the segment ends with Alexa Bliss on the screen with Bray's voice corresponding with her lips. Let me in. Uh, it seemed like uh, Retribution... Uh, was being let out, or at least the air out of their sails was certainly out by the end of this segment. I was astounded by this. This was so one-sided. It made zero sense to me. They're not writing off these characters, clearly, based on what we'd see later in the night, but that's what this totally felt like. It felt like they just decided, this. we're done with this gimmick, because that's how it felt after the first 15 minutes of Raw. Retribution came to the ring and surrounded the Fiend. They could not have booked Retribution much worse tonight. Retribution looked awful today. And I I don't know if it's like that was always the intention or maybe it was because of the fan backlash and how people have been, you know, what they've been saying about Retribution on social media and whatnot, or if this was always the plan for Retribution because it feels like so much effort was put into them and making them a big deal or whatever to now. I mean, we went weeks and weeks where they were, you know, a mystery. Then we get them. Then we, we find out who's in retribution. And now like this was embarrassing. Tonight was a really embarrassing night for retribution. Yeah. I know it wasn't the plan all along because they didn't have a plan all along. They never had a plan all along. But T-Bar taps out to the full Nelson. Oh, having the biggest guy on the team tapping out. Their first match that had a definitive ending, Denise. This is bad. It was bad. Like, really, really bad. Like, I 
I'm telling you, I didn't think that Retribution would get completely make them look like, you know, like fools. They look like geeks. They look like nerds. It looked really, really bad. The fact that he tapped out and, and I get it. If it's anybody else. Okay, fine. Tap whatever but these are supposed to be these like you know rambunctious group of rebels or whatever you want to describe them as but they're supposed to be cool right isn't that the idea of retribution that they're supposed to be cool because they're standing up to this corporate entity and the fact that he just tapped i mean it was it was not good at all it, it was not i'd rather them have rolled somebody up or just pinned but to have him tap out into a full nelson not the most imposing finisher ever, even if it's from Lashley. The outrage on Twitter was strong on this one, uh, with it being one of the those incidents on WWE where not even the promotion's most fervent defenders could even say much. It, I mean, it was just universally panned. Wrestling Inc. owner Raj Geary weighed in on Twitter writing, wow, they had Retribution lose in their second match and then get destroyed afterward. WWE cannot do simple-ass basic storytelling anymore. Other widely panned segments uh, on the show included Matt Riddle uh, acting too scared of the large human being, Jordan Amogbihan, who uh, debuted as AJ Styles' new bodyguard. Uh, and then the abrupt ending of the show, which went off the air just as WWE champion Drew McIntyre used bolt cutters to enter the Hell in a Cell structure to face off with his opponent um, tonight, s Sunday night on uh, Hell in a Cell, Ra uh, Randy Orton. Initially, there was speculation and buzz that the show had been uh, mistimed somehow and ended before the two rivals could lock up. But PW Insider's Mike Johnson reported, no, that was the planned ending. Just as soon as he entered the cage, square up, off, off air, show over. Tune in Sunday to see what happens. The bolt cutter entrance, by the way, actually ruined the gimmick of the match, according to Brian Alvarez. By my count, that makes it about, I don't know what, the 309th time the Hell in a Cell gimmick has been ruined in the past 10 years. I joke, but he does have a point. The, the most widely uh, speculated direction for the angle was that McIntyre was hidden under the ring and would wait to confront Orton until the cage door was locked. But McIntyre just came out cut his way in, leading to the question of why wouldn't Orton or anyone just cut their way out of the cage? Hide the bolt cutters under the ring. On, uh, But, you know, on closer examination, too, is it really the bolt cutters that have ruined this particular gimmick match? Or has oversaturation done the job? The Hell in a Cell, I remember the Hell in a Cell being something that you could actually kind of look forward to. One of the, some of the more seminal moments happened uh, in Hell in a Cell, Kane debuted ripping the door off. Remember that? He didn't even need bolt cutters. He just came out, ripped the door off during the match with uh, Shawn Michaels and Undertaker. Uh, everyone remembers Undertaker versus Mick Foley. Right? I mean, these are the, the, the Hell in a Cell used to be cool, used to be something. But as I noted, Hell in a Cell, it's tonight as I record this, and it's scheduled to have three sell matches and there's been some discussion of of what match will be the main event or close the show out mike johnson a pw insider reported that drew mcintyre and randy orton will close the show wrestle votes on twitter had previously reported that sasha banks versus bailey would close the show zach haydorn 
Zach Haydorn over on a, in his column at PW Torch wrote this week, three cell matches in a matter of three hours? It doesn't matter how good you are or how hot the feud is. Keeping the matches fresh is simply impossible. Main event or not, if I'm Roman Reigns, I'm itching to go first. In his, he does a podcast every week with, uh, with Bruce Mitchell, the senior columnist at The Torch. And, you know, Mitchell pointed out, even in, in back in the day with cage matches, there's no way in hell you'd even see, you know, two cage matches on the same show, or, or let alone three. So it's just the, the hell in a cell. You know, I almost am bored by the, the vitriol every year when Hell in a Cell comes around and people talk about the gimmicks ruined. The, the gimmicks overexposed. They just need to kind of retire it every once in a while. And the fact that they have an entire event focused on it, like it's not the Elimination Chamber. That's something you can build an event around. That's a gimmick match that actually works annually for a reason in an elimination and the last person standing gets a title match coming out of it. It's awesome. In my opinion, the Hell in a Cell, just every October you get Hell in a Cell because it's kind of, it's, you know, it's kind of around Halloween and it's kind of spooky. Eh, weird. Very weird. Some of my favorite reactions this week were uh, out of the AEW show, actually, Dynamite. There's a lot of buzz coming out of AEW's D Dynamite, and uh, especially this week with regard to, to several segments. One of them being the new presentation of Kenny Omega and what it means uh, for the character going forward. Now, if you missed it, Omega came out with a new highly embellished entrance uh, for his opening round tournament match that had been scheduled against Joey Janela. But Janela, however, pulled himself off the show due to concerns that he'd been exposed to coronavirus on an indie show uh, a week or so back. Omega instead faced uh, Sonny Kiss, and just squashed him with two moves. V-Trigger, one-winged angel, and that was it. Dominant victory. We have clips here from post-wrestling's John Pollock and Wei Ting, Wade Keller and, uh, Jace and, uh, and Jason Powell from the Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast at PW Torch, and then Todd Martin from his show at The Torch um, called The Fix. And these are kind of taking their opinions on the new the new feel for Kenny Omega. Justin Roberts introduces Omega, the mega champion of AAA, PWI's number one wrestler on the PWI 500, the Wrestling Observer Wrestler of the Year, Sports Illustrated's Wrestler of the Year, the man who broke Meltzer's scale. He is so fluent in Japanese that he sometimes translates for Michael Nakazawa and once performed in North Carolina. And we see a silhouette of Kenny Omega as these two women are out sweeping with brooms as they cut into battle cry as Omega comes out as just the most detestable heel. Yeah, it's his new, very over the top, um, yeah, cocky heel type of entrance. Uh, it's we are reestablishing Kenny Omega. This is where Excalibur mentions that Joey Janela removed himself from the match. Omega shakes hands with Kiss, V-Trigger, One-Winged Angel, and pins Sonny Kiss in 26 seconds. And afterwards, picks up Kiss, gives a hug, but is doing it in such a disingenuous fashion that you clearly saw what the 
like this new direction for Kenny Omega. And part of this was like the way Kenny had set this up was the idea that he's this incredible tournament wrestler. So you got the sense, man, this guy's going to have his own little mini G1 in three weeks. Do you, what do you think of uh, Kenny's new entrance and what they did with him winning quick last night against Sonny Kiss? Yeah, so I'm intrigued now. It's, yeah, it yeah. does feel like, okay, what, whatever the first year was, if it was by design, so be it. It wasn't well done. If we're going to start kicking into gear now, great. My only concern is all this cleaner stuff. How much of your audience is familiar with the cleaner? Are you going to explain this to them? Or are you going to have to just, you know, talk to somebody who watched everything in New Japan to figure it out if you weren't somebody watching. Hopefully they're you know aware of that and, and it's not going to be an issue. But I did like you know, the over-the-top introduction with the PWI 500 number one and, and just all of that stuff was pretty comical. And then, you know, Kenny was quirky Kenny after, uh, but I thought Sonny Kiss did a really nice job of telling the story with his facial expressions that, you know, well, get away from me, basically. Yeah. <laughs> was I thought the Omega presentation felt like he was making fun of the criticisms of him. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I need more of a star presentation. Well, how about I go ridiculously over the top? Oh, I shouldn't sell so much. Well, how about I just destroy my opponent like it's nothing? Um, and hey, I mean that's that's cool by me. I thought the the visual presentation of him before the uh, the match was great. I was happy he ran through Sunny Kiss rather than having a long competitive match. I thought that was more effective in getting him over. And the thing I loved the most was him insincerely raising Sonny's hand after the match, after Sonny got killed. I thought that was just great heel stuff. I mean, what a dick move. You know, you destroy this guy, and then you help him up, and you raise his hand. Like, let's hear it for the loser. You know, it's just such an obnoxious move, and I thought Sonny did a good job of, of selling um, that as well. The one thing I would have changed is I thought that the long string of superlatives by Justin Roberts was too cute. I think that's something you can do after you've established someone's character is really arrogant. But to me, the Omega direction has been pretty recent. So the long list of accomplishments felt too on point and cute and unearned from a storyline perspective. To me, that's something you do in two months when it's like you've established this, this, you know, because at this point, it's still sort of like, who is this guy? Like, you know, and I think you did a lot of things here where you can sort of create people, you know, you know there's an you can be off balance about who exactly Kenny Omega is, but at the point they're rattling off that ridiculous, ridiculous list. It, I think they're, you know, they're, 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 they're putting in two, two, they're putting in all caps, something that they could just, that's a good analogy for you. They're putting in all caps, something that you can just <laughs> state regularly. You don't, you don't need to, you know, highlight it quite so finely. So very clearly there, uh, the, the takeaway was a, Smug, new, heelish Kenny Omega, right? Pretty clear. The, the long list of superlatives ending with, and this is what I do kind of agree with, with Todd Martin on this one, where it was a little too cute, where the ending was, he once performed in North Carolina, which was a laugh line. I laughed at it, but I'm like, okay, come on. But, you know, so clearly by all accounts, the guy's a heel, right? Kenny Omega is, is kind of going heel. Well, not, wait, not so fast. Not so fast. So this is kind of like older listeners or, or previous listeners of the show will know we, we sometimes do this segment called The Joust. And this to me is, is kind of like The Joust this, this week. And also, too, it's got the, 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 the pleasure of being a joust within a clip. What we're going to listen to here was not just Dave Meltzer's take on it, but Brian Alvarez's take on it. 
And, and Dave Meltzer saw it a little bit differently than everyone else. Joey Janelle out. We've got Kenny Omega versus Sonny Kiss. Kenny has gone full cleaner heel. He's got two women in bikinis with a broom. He wasn't really a heel. He 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 hugged Sonny Kiss. I mean, he just yeah. But Dave, that was such a bullshit heel. Oh, I beat you in two seconds. Give me a hug. Sonny Kiss wanted nothing to do with this guy. This is yeah. full blown heel. He's got no, he was I, he's I got was, the was, guy I, doing the ring entrance saying he's had more five star matches on the Meltzer scale than anybody. He's broken the scale more times than anybody. Well, it's true. Got the women with the brooms and the whole. I mean, he's. Total yeah. heel right now. I thought it was just a superstar that wasn't a babyface or a heel. Nah, he's I a smarmy was... heel. I'll ask him. I just thought it was a superstar entrance. That, well, it is they're... a superstar entrance. He's got a brand new superstar entrance. I mean, it's it's that'll break your scale. But, I mean, this guy's totally a heel right now. And if that's not his intention, I don't know what to tell you. Well... He did not one. He did not do one heel tactic. He threw a knee and a one winged angel and was over in like whatever it was, sixteen seconds. What he did was he hit a V trigger. He hit the one winged angel. He smirked into the camera. He got up and sarcastically wanted a handshake. Sonny Kiss didn't want to give him a handshake, so he gives him the big hug and he walks off. And Sonny's disgusted with this guy. And he and Sonny he, is for sure a baby face. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as. He was pandering to the crowd to cheer for Sonny, which a heel does not do. He was just he was just out there being a superstar. If anything, this is going to make him a lot more popular than than uh, what he was doing before. Because the whole thing is is it's though can't you know just like what he said on the uh, the thing. It's like this the the old Kenny Omega is back. One wonders here if maybe Dave just can't stand the idea that anyone is using the shattering of his five-star scale as the basis of being a heel. Because <laughs> to him, that's like, oh, that's a sign of a baby face. He's a, he's a great wrestler. <laughs> oh, that might have been one of, my, uh, one of my favorite moments of the week. Another thing coming out of Dynamite this week I found interesting is the confusion over what direction the young bucks are going in. This came up in a couple of conversations uh, I heard, one of them uh, between Keller and Powell this week on, on their show, and we'll take a listen to that. Do, do you get what they're doing with the Young Bucks, Jason? No, not a clue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, um... the, the, I mean, the best thing come up with, they're trying to give them an edge, but this isn't edgy. It's just, like you said, dickish. Yeah. I just, I, I do fear sometimes that the gushing over the top ego stroking in certain circles that certain people in AEW get is going to be a hindrance. I, I, I mean, it's, it is remarkable how, and, and this happens, you know, with all wrestling companies and wrestlers and everything. I mean, it's not unique to AEW, although it's pronounced how much they get uh, just knee jerk, run to the defense of AEW for anything, uh, free pass, uh, you know, like just, you know, the Bucks, the greatest take team of, are they the greatest take team of all time? It's like, are we, are we really ask? is it time to ask that question yet? Like, let's, let's give them a few more years of being on national TV every week instead of just having super kick parties once every couple months at, at live events in front of, uh, you know, hundreds of people. Um, you know, let's get to, let's, let's get a bigger body of work. Marketing wise, that's fine, but see it for what it is. It's marketing. It's not reality yet. I mean, Kenny was fantastic having New Japan style matches, but he's had a way below expectations first year as a weekly national television performer 
in a character-driven setting. Oh, um, but you don't get it, Wade. The first, it, this was all by design. Well, that's the thing. A year ago, you would hear that. Oh, it's a long-term plan. It's a long-term plan. Well, you know what? They had 1.7 million viewers for seven days after seven days of viewing for week number one. And, you know, now they're drawing a million. They've lost a huge chunk of their audience. I mean, I know it's not a perfectly fair idea. Um, Right. Number to throw out there because the first week popped a rating, but they haven't grown in a year and they had a pandemic. So I always put caveats in there. But um, but yeah, it's like I agree. I, I'm just the bit, I'm rolling my eye when I hear people go. It's all part of a master plan. You might have a master plan. It doesn't mean it's a good master plan or it's well executed or that it's prudent. So interesting, you know, starting to question the direction of AEW, particularly with regard to the direction of the Young Bucks, who are embroiled right now in kind of a feud with the uh, FTR and Tully Blanchard, who are also heels. So you get this kind of tweener Bucks situation going on with the heel uh, FTR. And then, of course, you got the, the kind of the, the shifting in direction of Omega. And uh, I found that interesting, but but really, I, what I also found interesting, and we'll listen to this next, is uh, on his show with um, co weekend co-host Garrett Gonzalez on Saturday. Even staunch Bucks supporter uh, Meltzer was hard pressed to lend any insight into what the goal is that the the young Bucks have here currently. Let's listen to this. Can I ask you about the Bucks and FTR? Because I probably don't have the answer. <laughs> well, may, I mean, may, maybe. <clears throat> so, so FTR are like the jocks, like they're the bullies. Yeah. And the Young Bucks come across as jerks. So it's the bullies versus the jerks for this title. And at the end of that, at that show, when the bullies are beating down the jerks, I didn't really feel badly for the jerks because they're jerks. Like, I don't know what I was supposed to feel at the end of that show. Well, I don't understand what the Young Bucks are doing. And I probably at some point, I, I hate to ask, like, what's your angle? You know what I mean? But Yeah, because you, you kind of want to see it play out, too. Because, like, yeah, I want to see it play out and everything. And it's not like WWE where it's like I'm going with the idea that, like, in three weeks, Vince is going to forget it. So it doesn't matter anyway. I mean, it's like, obviously, these guys have a plan, and it's probably like months and months down the line, and probably in the end, in their, nothing, put it like, in their mind, I'm sure it makes sense. Right now, I'm watching it going like, you're about to wrestle FTR, this match has been, people have been waiting for this match for three years, and now, it's just like, you know, why are you going in his heels, or why are you trying to be heels at all, um, I mean, you can always do that later, but right now, this is these like if you're if you're doing if you're going into a big feud with Private Party somehow or or Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus, you know, where you pretty much have to be kind of like you can do your style, but you have to sort of be the heels because you got to make the young team look good because that's just how you do it. I mean, it makes sense, all the sense in the world, but with this, with when FTR is your big match, it it doesn't to me. So. I hope he checks in with them soon, uh, even if they might get a little bit offended, because I know a lot of people would like to know what the, what the thinking is here. What is the thought process? Like Meltzer said, people have been waiting for this match for three years, you know, it, since, the, since FTR were in WWE before they got their, their releases. And now here they are in AEW. They're about to have this big match, and it's kind of like this muddy, you know, situation. Who do you cheer for? Who's the, who's the baby face? Who's the heel? 
So, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll hear more about this, but I thought it was interesting. Interesting that you don't often hear that sort of outright, you know, I got no idea coming from uh, someone like Dave Meltzer, particularly with regard to Kenny Omega or the Young Bucks. All right, by far the biggest conversation in wrestling this week centered on the Broadway-style song and dance routine performed by Chris Jericho and MJF during AEW Dynamite on Wednesday. Immediate response on wrestling Twitter was overwhelmingly positive. Many of the top reviewers agreed during the post-Dynamite recap shows that followed, you know, this was just all that in a bag of chips. And we'll listen here. Let's take a listen to John Pollock and Wei Ting on Rewind a Dynamite. Uh, they really kind of encapsulated a lot of what uh, I was hearing following uh, Dynamite on the show. And that was it. I love this. Man, this was totally not what I was expecting when they announced uh, this steak dinner between these two. Um, And it was absolutely incredible. Like, I just love it whenever I see artists take creative risks. And these two did something I've never before seen on a wrestling TV show. I don't think I ever will again. It's an incredibly absurd idea that I can only imagine probably came out of some random conversation that these two had about a mutual love for Frank Sinatra or something like that. Um, Somebody came up with a ridiculous suggestion and they committed 1,000% to this ridiculous idea. This song was impressive. The lyrics, I'm sure, took a lot of effort. They were like references to all members of the of, of the roster. Um, doing that whole coordinated song and dance with the what I'm assuming are the Jaguars dancers in only a few takes, and then like the wraparound skit with the rare steak. I I thought it was excellent, and I don't know. Um, like by the end of it, I'm like, man, wow! Like this was a really excellent way of like having MJF and Chris Jericho get along famously at a dinner to lead to the next chapter of this story. Um, like it totally just, it just, it supports these characters. Like, can you imagine prior to tonight, these two, these J- Chris Jericho, Le Champion and MJF breaking into song, the two dastardly heels, it's like, I, I don't know. I'm never going to be one of those that, oh, how can you not like something? But seriously, I, I had so much fun watching this. It totally just reinforces these characters. Like, you can't break this down that this is some uh, kind of awful thing, which, you know, any segment like this is going to have that critical debate about it. And everyone's free to have their opinion. But I, I had so much fun watching this. Well, some people just look strictly for, you know, sports in, in their professional wrestling. And... I don't think this is a promotion that gives you that. I mean, WWE is certainly not a promotion that gives you that. Uh, but AEW Dynamite has, I would say, like, as far on, on the range of, like, you know, where Dynamite has gone, this is definitely out there. Um, it's probably more on the level of something like a Firefly Funhouse, if I have to be honest. But I thought it was made with great care, and it was entertaining as fuck. Brian Alvarez on Wrestling Observer Radio also loved the segment as well. Dave Meltzer loved the performances while also acknowledging that it might not be for everyone. I, I mean, I thought the whole performance was just like, it was really, I thought the, the, the one that I guess like bothers me is like people going like, like, but it's like, 
you absolutely have the right to hate the segment and not want something like this on wrestling. And that's fine. You know what I mean? It's like, I can, I can absolutely see that, you know, it's just like, it is not what some people want wrestling to be. Okay. That's fine. And everyone, you, you, you know, you can't say you're wrong. It's like, now, is it, is that the majority of people? Probably not, but we'll see. But what I thought was weird was people going like, oh, they were so bad. And it's like, they weren't, I mean, they were like, um, campy as shit. I mean, obviously, but as far as pulling that off, how many guys in wrestling, do you think there's 10 guys in Dude, wrestling? Dude, almost that off? nobody. Flair. Almost. Well, Flair can't sing. Flair it couldn't doesn't matter. Flair pull it off somehow. Yeah, most very few people in wrestling could have pulled this one off because you got to be able to sing, you got to be able to dance. And I mean, like, and they're both like real singers. I mean, MJF is like, you know, a real singer. I know a lot of people don't know that, but he is. And Jericho obviously is a real singer. So, um, and Jericho danced and dancing with the stars. I didn't know what MJF's dance background is, but he pulled it off. And the girls were good. And it was so, it was just campy as hell, but. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. So, Jimmy Corderas was uh, critical of the segment, tweeting, If this segment was on any other show, fans would completely shit on it, but I'm sure it will get critical acclaim, quote-unquote, from the enlightened. Meltzer, who had taken to Twitter to defend the segment for hours Wednesday night, even rushed in with a response to Cordero's tweet, Elias literally just performed a musical number on Raw without almost anyone ripping on it. And I'm seeing way, way more criticism of Jericho. Ergo, your point is exactly ass backwards. Todd Martin of PW Torch pointed out a key distinction here. When he tweeted at Meltzer, Elias did a musical concert, like the Great American Bash 85. Jericho and MJF did a musical comedy sketch, like Family Guy. Martin also offered the most salient negative views on this on his podcast, The Fix, this week, uh, breaking down how whether you like the segment or not, whether you're, whether or not you found it entertaining, that kind of wasn't the point. And he argued that it's, regardless of that, it's probably just not the best idea on a wrestling show. Yeah, so, so let's put aside... Um liking or, or not liking it because so much of the reaction seemed to be just whether it was fun or not. And to me, there's plenty of entertaining television, you know, go, go catch up on crazy ex-girlfriend, which did a hell of a lot more than just recreating old song and dance numbers. The, the, the question I think is whether airing stuff like that on a wrestling show is a good idea or a bad idea. And I remain firmly convinced that it's a bad idea. Uh, for, for two key reasons. One is that that is precisely the sort of stuff that ran so many fans away from WWE. People grew tired of wacky comedy skits that they perceived to be stupid and left because they wanted a show that seemed less like a cartoon. And one of the strongest things AEW has going for it is that it's an alternative to a product that a huge group of fans don't like and stop watching. And you can appeal to those people over time, but you have to be a genuine alternative and you're not being an alternative when you do precisely the sort of things that people like least about WWE and fans that still watch wrestling, I think misunderstand this point because they look at the fans who are left watching wrestling 
And there's generally a high tolerance for this sort of stuff, either because they genuinely liked it from the beginning or because they were willing to take it to get to the stuff that they do like. And you've got this historically low level of popularity of wrestling in this country. And people conclude, well, that group is reflective of a larger potential base. And I don't think it is. And I think you're giving the finger to a huge group of potential fans who love Stone Cold Steve Austin attacking everybody and drinking beer and kicking ass and aren't nearly so keen on song and dance numbers in the context of a wrestling show. And I've noted this a number of times, but which companies in this general genre have grown exponentially in the last 20 years? There are only two answers to that question after Dead AF and Pride stopped rising. The two answers are UFC and New Japan. And there's a common denominator there. They gave you serious people fighting, which was always the central hook of pro wrestling. And they don't veer off Toriano's side into regular um, – and I, I don't even have to say Toriano's side. They don't veer off into regular comedy vignettes with the key characters on the show. Um, um, I think there's another completely independent reason why segments like that are counterproductive. Let's let's assume that everybody that watched that segment loved it and found it hilarious. What effect does that segment like that have on the product? The clear potential pro for that sort of thing is that it adds levity to the show. But wrestling in 2020 is clearly not suffering from taking itself too seriously. The major American wrestling promotions have tons of comedy, tons of comedy characters, tons of comedy skits. And meanwhile, very few wrestling fans have a serious emotional attachment in the shows. They'll laugh at the stuff they find funny, and they'll chant, this is awesome in the action, or they'll say, this vignette's amusing. But the core of wrestling success for pretty much the entirety of its history has been fans caring deeply about who wins and who lost, who loses. You know, the grudges, the titles, the drama of it all. And what we've got now is this relatively small core of people who watch from a detached point of view. They break down the show analytically rather than investing emotionally in their favorites. They don't take seriously anything that happens. And they like these sorts of, you know, these sorts of uh, side gags into, um, into other territory because they don't have that core investment in the drama of everything. So he brings up a, a couple of really great points there that kind of I wanted to highlight because it was actually when I I showed it to a friend who is a lapsed fan, a couple of them. And our conversations about it were al along similar lines. Like for me, what I said was I I found the segment entertaining. I laughed. I thought it was ballsy. I thought all of the things that the people who loved it thought I also thought. And I even wondered on Twitter, maybe it's time to just do a full musical full musical episode of a wrestling show. Why the hell not? Because I kind of do agree with Todd that we're in the era of the ironic wrestling fan. Uh, you know, this it's not emotional anymore. It's not visceral. It's you watch you watch to analyze the matches and break it down move by move and then you've got the kind of fans who are just kind of watching it um, 
just for the goofiness. It's what what struck me was AEW was formed as an alternative to WWE. And as I watched it, I was so struck by this idea that if a year ago you would have said, if even six months ago you would have said in October, you're going to see a Broadway-style musical song and dance number on a primetime wrestling show on cable TV. No one would have guessed it was AEW because AEW is the alternative. You would think this is absolutely some good shit, quote-unquote, that Vince McMahon would do on Raw or SmackDown. So... I just want, you know, I just, I guess I just wonder if AEW is the alternative to that kind of goofy shit. Why are you, why is there almost as much goofy shit on that show? Are they positioning themselves to have the most success when it comes to positioning themselves as an alternative to WWE? Many times throughout the night and into the next morning, Meltzer would remark that we'd soon find out whether the segment would worked because the ratings would be in. But then an interesting thing happened, and the ratings came in. And the segment was actually the lowest rated quarter hour overall on the show. Meltzer reported this in the Observer Newsletter Thursday night, but on his podcast, his reactions to the ratings, he kind of softened the blow a little bit leaving out the fact that it was the lowest-rated quarter hour and talking about how, even if it wasn't more highly rated, it would still end up being the most memorable. Let's take a listen to to how he positions the ratings. Again, this was the lowest-rated quarter hour of the whole show. You know, ratings-wise... I mean, it's it's hard to evaluate the whole thing. It was not a giant quarter, but usually when they do stuff outside the ring, they usually don't do well. I mean, that's the reality of AEW, and sometimes you got to do that stuff. You got to do promotional stuff to build stars and characters. It's you know you you it's you know ratings is a funny game. It's you have to sacrifice quarters sometimes to go to something else, and if they think this is going to be a real big thing, you know whatever. But um, I mean, it, it didn't light the world on fire ratings wise, um, but. You know, I mean, it's not like people, you know, the the quarter wasn't a big quarter and the main event did great. So it's not like people like tuned out and didn't come back or anything. Um, And I'm going to guess that the actual song and dance thing probably did better than the sitting there eating the steak dinner and ordering the, you know, um, ordering the food. And nobody was, I don't, I don't know if people were offended by the, the steak dinner and the ordering of the food, but people were just up in arms about the, uh, the song and dance thing. And it's like, and you got a right to be, if you didn't like it, you know, um, that's, that's your taste. But, but the idea that you're saying that like, that's going to ruin AEW or, or whatever, you know, that that's, that's it. They've, it's not pure sports. It's like, uh, you know, um, it's, it's whatever, whatever. You know, it's like, it's not ruining it. Did it help it? Probably didn't help it. In five years from now, are people going to look back and remember it more than the Pentagon Phoenix match? Or even this week? Probably. They probably will remember it more. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure they will. So whatever, that's something to be said for that as well. Didn't light the world on fire. Sometimes you have to sacrifice quarter hours. See what he's saying? The, the segment wasn't a hit. It was the lowest rated quarter hour. But he didn't talk about it and frame it that way. Most memorable. We're going to remember that one five years from now. He's probably right. We will. But sometimes you got to listen. Sometimes it's what isn't said. Especially with regard to this kind of, there's a perception of, bi of bias, right? A lot has been said about Dave Meltzer's bias toward AEW and, and against WWE. Even without me around to nitpick and poke fun at him, you know, over the, the last year and a half. I haven't been around for over a year. But the image has persisted. Sometimes it's in a general feeling that you can't quite put your finger on it. Whether it's just a, a tone shift. Like when he gently offered, it's kind of a bad idea, concern, over his friend Chris Jericho's Fozzie concert at the Super Spreader event in Sturgis, South Dakota in August. As Trevor Dame, the host of Through the Years uh, ROH podcast, would say at the time, it's all in the tone. He wrote on the board back in August with this observation. With WWE, we get loud, angry rants for 10 to 30 minutes at a time for multiple podcasts. When Jericho does this shit, the tone is much calmer. And it's more, well, this isn't a good idea, but they had masks and they had temp checks and Jericho didn't book Sturgis and people would have attended anyway, and on and on and on and on. When WWE does reckless shit during the pandemic, we get tons of vitriol. Jericho does it, and we get a sheepish, well, I wouldn't do it, and a bunch of caveats. Because we often get this feeling that Dave simply doesn't want to upset or challenge his friends. And when he does, he certainly doesn't want to do it with the sturm und drang of venomous, pointed style that he uses to go after WWE at every turn. As Dame points out, it's... He's sheepish, as you heard a few clips back when he hasn't asked the young bucks what their angle is because he doesn't you kind of get the impression he doesn't want to offend them. That he doesn't get it, that it's kind of missing the mark, but he doesn't want to ask them about it. Sometimes, too, it's in what Meltzer doesn't say. It's the sort of bias by omission. I'll give you a quick example. The other day I was listening to Wade Keller's conversation with Jason Powell on the Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast. We've heard clips of it here previously on the show. And they were talking about Kenny Omega, and Keller brought up a bit on being the elite from a couple of weeks back that Powell hadn't seen. And I, I hadn't seen it either. So I was kind of surprised at this. Right, if you're in a minivan, you might want to fast forward a minute um, with your kids. Um, on being the elite, um, Kenny... Um, uh, had Michael Nakazawa drop to his knees. Kenny dropped his pants, um, shoved his uh, bikini briefs towards Michael Nakazawa. Nakazawa opened his mouth and closed his eyes. And then um, Kenny shifted slightly and said, it, look at my leg hair or some bruise on my leg or something. I can't remember what, or 
You're making tan, this up. No, or his tan line. He had some excuse. And then uh, and then Michael Nakazawa opened his eyes and like, oh, oh, okay. And then, uh, and so the joke was, you know, Michael Nakazawa was ready to give oral sex to Kenny reluctantly. And Kenny was like, no, no, not that. And it was supposed to be this really funny thing. And then everyone kind of exhales and goes, okay, well, that was weird. And then as they cut away, uh, as they're about to cut away from the scene, Kenny says, now suck me off. That didn't happen. It did happen. I have to start paying attention to being the league. <laughs> no, really? Yes. Wow. Yep. Now, granted, I don't pay any closer attention to being the elite than Jason Powell does, but I was surprised I hadn't heard about it uh, from the biggest BTE fan I follow, Dave Meltzer. I know of no bigger admirer of that show than Dave. He raves about it. I've often gotten countless DMs with clips uh, to Dave shows where he's just gushing about the most peculiar skits on that show, prefaced by notes like, find something you love the way Dave Meltzer loves BTE. So how could I miss this? I went back and I looked, and would you believe that the week this Omega Nakazawa skit aired, Dave did not cover being the elite on Wrestling Observer Radio, despite consistently covering the show pretty much every week prior, for at least the past month. And then he recapped it this week, too. So we only skipped that last week. His rundown in the Observer that week was relatively brief as well, focusing only on the Adam Page portions rather than an entire recap like we get most weeks. So why? Did he dislike the segment and therefore he didn't want to cover it? Because you see, when it comes to his friends in AEW, sometimes he hasn't got anything nice to say. He simply won't say anything at all. Which, you know, that's an actual good quality for a human being. It's not the best quality for an analyst who's actually paid a premium to give unbiased reactions to the shows he covers. You can't just omit it one week because you may, may not have liked something. I couldn't imagine what Dave might have said about that skit. It, does, it doesn't strike me as something that Dave would ordinarily like. You know, there's nothing... I don't know. It's, it's not that there's anything wrong with the skit necessarily. I watched it. I thought it was stupid, but I'm, you know, it's not, I wasn't like grossed out by it or anything like that. It was just like a dumb, out-of-place skit on a show that he ordinarily raves about. So when you don't get that rave review and instead you don't hear anything at all about it, it makes you wonder. And then there are other times when the perception of bias exists because it's, it's actually more pronounced. When you could swear you heard him have the opposite take when it comes to AEW than he does when it comes to WWE on the same topic. And that's what we had this week on the topic of creating new stars. After Jungle Boy lost his opening round tournament match on Dynamite to Wardlow, Dave lamented how Jungle Boy is kind of in a holding pattern until the crowds come back to wrestling shows. And then he went on to elaborate on creating new stars in the era of COVID. You know, it's just, every, you know, the, the blaming people for not making stars, it's, it's I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's, Far, far, far more difficult now to make a star than at any other time because stars have to be, you know, the fans have to get behind stars to be real stars. And you can't do that because there's no fans. Even when you, you know, tell the you you uh, tell the fans to chant and stuff for him when it's 50 or 100 people um, or even 500 people, it, it's just not that kind of a noise level where somebody watching is going, oh, my God, this guy's so over. 
nobody feels like that. So you kind of are, you know, left with the guys who are already over. So that's the kind of situation that you're kind of stuck in. And it's not a good, it's not a good situation for wrestling. And hopefully, you know, hopefully things change. Then on Saturday night's Wrestling Observer Radio podcast, Meltzer took on the same topic as it relates to Dominic Mysterio's tough time on SmackDown. Just like, how are you making stars? You know what I'm saying? They're not making stars. It's like, oh, this is how you make a star, by humiliating them over and over and over again. Well, you, you know, you've been doing this to everyone, you know, for years and years and years. And the only star you've made this way is freaking Daniel Bryan. You know, and to an extent, Becky Lynch and Becky Lynch was an accident, and Daniel Bryan. They was were an both accident. an accident. I know. Well, you know, it, it, but it's like here you got like again every time somebody new comes in, and you know there it is. Now they're on a new brand, and what do you do? You beat up Dominic again. It's like straight down the middle, fair and balanced, right? That's the show for today folks thank you so much for listening and hopefully i'll be back soon follow me on twitter at pro wrestling until next time enjoy your wrestling